Hello and welcome to HipCast, the podcast here to improve hip fracture care. From the Australian and New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry, I'm Research Assistant Neve Ramsey and firstly I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work at the ANZHFR. And I share this acknowledgement to the traditional custodians past, present and emerging across Australia, New Zealand and wherever you may be tuning in from. Today I have Dr. Hannah Seymour joining me on the podcast to talk about the Clinical Frailty Scale, which is a judgment-based frailty tool that evaluates specific domains including comorbidity, function and cognition. Dr. Seymour is a geriatrician based at Fiona Stanley Hospital in Western Australia, and she has been involved in researching the effectiveness of employing the Clinical Frailty Scale in hip fracture care. So welcome Dr. Seymour, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So to begin, can you tell us a bit more about your professional background and your clinical interests? Um, so I'm a geriatrician. I've worked in Perth for 20 years um, and during my training did quite a lot of orthogeriatrics, um, but in more of the rehab aspects. Um, since Fiona Stanley Hospital opened in 2015, I've been the consultant orthogeriatrician um, and we look after a very high volume of patients and have collected um, hip fracture data since we opened, which gives us this great pool of information to think about how we can do interesting studies. Thank you. And on that note, what is the clinical frailty scale and who should be using it? I think it came about because back in the days when we could go to meetings and we got to network with colleagues and hear about things that other people were doing face to face. I think I went to a meeting where um, Jackie Close and Christine Norris were talking about this, the project they were doing on um, implementing a shared care or an orthogeriatric approach in other surgical specialties, so particularly general surgery. And they talked about the work they'd done with different groups of surgeons and different frailty assessments. And came to the conclusion that in partnership with the surgeons, they could all agree to a clinical frailty scale. And that, I guess, made me think about, was that a good tool to use if we were starting to have a conversation each day about the patients that we operate on? So at Fiona Stanley, we have this joint team meeting where the surgeons and the physicians and the anaesthetists all get together. And we, the orthopaedic registrar who's been on overnight presents the patient. And I guess what struck me over time was that everybody's independent from home was slightly different. And I would see patients who the meeting had said we're independent from home and that wasn't quite how they were. And yet I'd meet other patients who were really, really fit and well, um, who were also in this category of independent from home. And at the same time, we constantly talk about mortality. And for me, mortality is a very easy outcome to measure. But it doesn't necessarily define is that good care or not, because lots of our patients are going to die in the next 12 months. Um, How they die and who's dying is probably much more important. So, again, an overall mortality rate that's within the normal range of 7% for Australia at the moment, if it's the really young, fit, older people who are really well from home dying, then I'd be concerned about that. If it's our frail older people who were on the verge of residential care before and this is an expected deterioration after an acute illness then maybe that that's still an okay outcome so I think what we didn't have was anything that really differentiated our patients into these different groups and I wondered having heard that talk well maybe clinical frailty scale would be something that could help that. 
Yes, definitely a great initiative. So from there, you went on to look at the clinical frailty scale and predicting mortality. Could you please tell us a bit about that process and your study design? So this was retrospective. Um, so what we did was we used our digital record to go back through the next, well, Sid um, and Adam did. So Sid Narula and Adam Lawless, who are the orthopedic registrars who did the study and did most of the audit work, um, went back through the notes and using mainly the allied health notes, um, retrospectively assigned people with a clinical frailty scale. Um, and they did that using a share tool. That then was compared with other data that we already collect in the hip fracture registry. So we already collected quite a lot of information about people, as we all know, about where they come from, where they live, how they were walking, their age. And then we collected what was their discharge destination from acute care. Did they go to rehab? Did they go back home? Um, but also we collected their mortality over the next year mm-hmm. and compared it with ASA. So for those who... ASA is a very um, a five-point scale, I guess, um, that puts people into categories depending on how much their diseases impact their function. And what we found was that most people are ASA3. That's fairly standard for most hip fractures. When you look at the hip fracture registry um, report, most people do fall into an ASA3 category. So that wasn't differentiating our patients very well. Um, and what we wanted to do was compare to the clinical frailty scale, differentiate our patients more accurately into different groups. Um, and then with that, we looked at a few other things which, um, you know, sort that were somewhat more surprising, things like fracture type, which again, we can go on to discuss. Great. So let's discuss results. What were your major findings? So I think our findings were not surprising at all. And I guess it's confirmation that we're providing um, care that seems appropriate for the individuals that we look after. So what we showed was that if you were very independent, clinical frail scale, one to three, what we call robust older people, those people with a hip fracture who were in that category were younger. Their average age was nearly 74. Um, most of them came from home. Only a tiny majority um, number came from home, um, from residential care. They had a short length of stay and had the highest rate of people going directly back to their home. Their mortality rate was very low. So only one of the patients in that category died within 30 days um, and only three by a year. So that is what we would hope and expect if we're providing high quality care. Um, What we then showed was that those groups in between. So we reported separately on people who were frail to scale four. So that's a group of people who have slowed down somewhat in the last year, but still would be in that original category of independent from home. And they had a slightly higher mortality, um, but still relatively low at one year. Um, Whereas clinical frail to scale five, they're those people who are vulnerable. They have some services at home, but can be relatively independent. So they're people who um, have services for cleaning, but not for personal activities of daily living. Um, And that group um, are still more vulnerable and definitely the data shows that they have a higher mortality rate. But it's beyond that, I think, where it really confirmed. And I was somewhat surprised by the finding. So clinical frailty scale six, that's people who are having some help with activities daily living and it's really it's getting harder to live at home without substantial services um, or a carer living with you Um, so but 80% of that group came from home 
and the majority needed rehabilitation um, after their acute episode. That group of patients had a low rate of inpatient deaths, but are starting to have a higher rate of 30-day and 12-month mortality. And I think what surprised me was when you look at the graph in the paper, that clinical frailty scale seven and above mortality was actually very similar to people who were previously clinical frailty scale six and had a hip fracture. And what I think that demonstrates is that if you're on the edge, so clinical frailty scale six are those that group of people at home who are requiring quite a lot of services and a lot of help. And if they have a hip fracture, it really is devastating. It's, it tips you over into being even more in, more dependent and you become almost a, a clinical frailty scale seven and you require and you acquire the comorbidities and, and the mortality risk that goes with that. So I think that wasn't surprising. I guess it gives us some somewhere to work on our outcomes because if, if someone who was living at home becomes more dependent after a hip fracture, there's still maybe some scope to do something better. Um, but I think what it confirmed was that if you're in the more independent um, group, that our outcomes in terms of mortality, at least, which is the one that's very easy to measure, are reasonably good and um, low, which is what we would want and expect. So how and when do you use, in, I guess, in your department and your work, the clinical frailty scale in your practice? And how do you feel this impacts care of patients with hip fractures? So we've been able to, each time the orthopaedic registrars change every six months, um, we now ask them and train them in how to use the clinical frailty scale. So the clinical frailty scale, one of the big benefits of it is it's really quick to do. It's really quick to train people to use. And it's quite reliable. And once you've given people that framework on how to assess people with the clinical frailty scale, it becomes very quick and easy to do and actually part of the admission process anyway. So we've managed to get consistently um, orthopaedic registrars to document um, both an AMT4 and a clinical frailty scale on admission in the emergency department. And what that means is in the morning, we all now have a shared understanding of how independent and robust that person is, which enables us to have a conversation about what we do. So one of the things we've looked at since then, for example, is what type of operation you get. Um, and one example of that would be a hemiarthroplasty versus a total hip replacement. Um, so we generally think that it's better to do a total hip replacement in very robust older people who've had a hip fracture because they're going to walk on that hip really well. And if they only have a hemiarthroplasty, that, that might wear out and require reoperation in the future. So we used to use criteria of driving and I can think of a really good example. So we had um, a relatively independent older man who didn't have any services who was still driving. And under our old criteria, he would have had a total hip replacement. When you actually assessed his clinical frailty scale and, you know, have you slowed down in the last year? Well, yes, he definitely had because he was actually driving his car to the park so that he could walk his dog, but he couldn't get round the park anymore. So he was driving his car to be able to walk his dog in the park by just standing still and letting the dog run around. Now, by our old criteria, he would have been independent from home and still driving and therefore had a total hip replacement. 
But when you actually assessed his clinical frailty scale, he became on the borderline where we would then have a joint discussion and maybe do a joint assessment to see whether it was appropriate to do a hemialtroplasty or a total hip replacement in someone like him. So I really do think it's helped us have those conversations and it's given us a much more standard way of talking about how patients function before they came in without using lots of words, because I'm very aware that, you know, we're all very busy and we need to get, you know, to be able to efficiently discuss all of the patients who are having surgery. So it's been a really good tool um, from that aspect for really painting a picture in people's heads of what what the individual whose x-ray we're looking at is actually like in terms of their function. Yes, the clinical frailty scale definitely gives a better insight into a person's day-to-day function. Now, following on from these impressive findings using the ANZHFR data in your study, you were actually able to use these findings to change what was collected as part of the ANZHFR data variables. And in 2020, clinical frailty scale was an included variable. Can you please tell us a bit more about the process behind using the ANZHFR data to impact the collection of future ANZHFR data? Yeah, so look, I probably have a huge benefit in that I um, sit on the ANZ Hip Fracture Steering Committee, and one of the committees that we have is the Data Committee, which is um, chaired by um, Rebecca Mitchell. So in that, there's lots of data variables we collect, and every year we do actually go through and see, well, are we actually using this to do anything meaningful? Um, Is it adding value to the data set we collect? Because we're very aware that collecting data is a burden um, on our clinical teams. So we constantly are wanting to know how we can improve it without changing it too often, which means that over time you can't compare um, the data variables. So there's a really fine balance there. And what, what we talked about with clinical frailty scale was that it was a much better measure than ASA for differentiating our patients. So if over time we want to look into more detail about how we're all performing and how we're all looking after people, then this might be a much better tool to standardise our our results. So if you're looking at mortality and how we standardise it at the moment, we use ASA to do that. But maybe this would be a better tool in the future to standardise our mortality and see if we've got um, good outcomes. So I think there's also other tools. I mean, we were having a conversation earlier today about um, fracture type. So one of the things that came out in the um, study was that the frailest people are the ones who are having many more intertrochanteric fractures and therefore needing what I think is one of the bigger operations in intramedullary nail. Um, And that wasn't something that's been reported before. So I think as other interesting things come out of collecting this this variable, since then, since the time that we agreed that we'd add this, um, many of our listeners would be aware that clinical frailty scale has become used in lots of settings across hospital to try and triage older people into different categories, maybe requiring different services. Um, So it it is something I think that is now widely used across a lot of hospitals. Um, And I think that's because it's a very easy tool to train people to use. And it's a very quick tool to um, perform that gives us this really simple language to talk to each other that hopefully is relatively consistent. For um, for people who might want to use this tool in their practice, where would you suggest they go to get a bit more information? 
Well, it's very easy to find the one page picture. Um, we find that when we train people, um, you just Google clinical frailty scale and you'll get a picture of it. And I have it saved to my phone and, and look it up if I need to clarify something. I think the words are much better than the pictures. So if I'm training people, I say to read the words. And if you match the person to the words, um, I think it, it, it works the best. Um, and if you start the most time efficient way to start it is do you have any services um, because that gets you into the middle categories and then you go up or down from there that's from my experience of conducting it quite a lot fantastic I'll make sure I include those resources in our episode notes today for our listeners and it sounds like that would be a very quick and easy tool to employ and use um, for new patients coming to the hospital with hip fractures to make sure everyone's on the same page Thank you, Dr. Seema, for joining us today. We really do appreciate you sharing this with us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.